Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. We have a news roundup to kick things off in which we'll be talking about YouTube TV, Apple's new iPhone and whether or not it might be using USB-C instead of lightning. And then the Snap IPO, which happened this morning and is a recording on Thursday. We'll then move on to our question of the week. And this week, our question is, what is AWS, Amazon's Amazon Web Services, and why are so many people dependent on it? And it's obviously in the news this week since AWS had a major outage that affected all kinds of things across the internet. So we'll talk about what AWS is, who uses it and what for, and uh, lots of other things about that business and, and uh, the implications for outages like this week's outage. We'll then talk in our third segment about Mobile World Congress, which took place this week and where, as usual, a lot of different announcements were made, especially about phones. So we'll talk about a number of the big phone announcements that were made there. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick in which Aaron has a recommendation for us. So let's kick off with the news roundup. And again, first off is this YouTube TV announcement, which is called, fittingly, YouTube TV. And uh, this is something that's been rumored for some time. Uh, YouTube itself has been essentially saying that it was working on something like this. This is yet another one of these online pay TV services. Think Sling TV, Direct TV Now, Sony, Sony PlayStation View. It's a bundle of channels that will be available online, uh, as yet time, date unknown, uh, later this year from YouTube um, with a YouTube-like interface and uh, uh, cloud DVR and various other features. Uh, what's interesting about this one is it has all four of the major broadcast networks and their cable affiliates, but really nothing else. So all the Turner channels are missing, uh, the Discovery channels are missing, AMC is missing, a whole bunch of other big cable networks that you might otherwise like to watch are missing from this package. Um, it's $35 a month. It'll be available, we presume, in all the usual places, uh, except that it will only be available in certain local areas. Uh, and that's because with the focus on the broadcast channels, YouTube will only be offering it in areas where the local affiliates are owned and operated by the broadcasters. Uh, so kind of highlights all kinds of challenges around the pay TV business. But Aaron, what was your response to this announcement this week? Um, I, yeah, I'm always happy to see every new uh, attempt to do TV over the internet like this. Um, I think what's interesting about this one is it's a different mix of content than we've seen before. There's going to be, it, it, I guess what we don't know, we don't know if there's going to be sort of this one standard mix that everybody gets, right, that all the different companies are offering, or if people over the long run are going to be choosing the one, the mix that they like best. Hey, one of the complaints people have had about cable for years is you get all these channels you don't want, and people prefer a la carte. This might be something as a hybrid, right? Something of a hybrid mm -hmm. between those two outcomes where you're not getting everything, um, but you're also not getting to pick and choose what you want. So you just sort of have to pick the service that you like best, whether you, you know that's uh, you know whether that's YouTube or or the, or the PlayStation service or whatever particular mix of channels is available to you as an option. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see if they all sort of gravitate to the same mix over time, mm -hmm. or if yeah. they all kind of remain distinct right now it's obviously just a product of deal making right um but uh, it'll be interesting to see how much that influences consumer behavior yeah absolutely i mean the other thing it's a product of frankly is a certain obsession if that's not too strong a word with hitting a price point somewhere around 35 dollars. i mean i mentioned this one is priced at exactly 35 dollars a month but right. you know almost all of these services seem to be targeting a price point right around there i think apple was reported to be aiming at something similar um 
the problem with that is, you know, we're all paying $90, $100 a month for standard pay TV with all the channels that we get. And so by definition, if you want to get to $30, $35, especially as a smaller sort of provider that doesn't have lots of existing relationships and the scale that comes with those, you're going to be paying a lot of money for all those channels. And so you need to offer some subset. And that means you have to make some trade-offs in terms of what you offer. And, and to your point, they're all making those trade-offs in different ways. But the end result is they all have some almost random subset of channels. It's mostly a factor of the deals that they've made. I mean, in this case, it's the four broadcasters and their affiliates. So you get ABC and then you get all the ESPN channels and Disney XD and so on. Uh, you get uh, Fox and you get Fox Sports and, and Fox News and all the rest of it uh, and so on and so forth. But you don't get, as I say, Turner channels or um, any of the other uh, big sets of channels from Discovery, AMC, Scripps and so on. Uh, which own a lot of the other popular channels because deals haven't been made with those providers. So in every case, it's about business reasons. It's about deal-making, as you said, rather than about necessarily a logical bundle of channels. Right. And uh, and that's the challenge here is if you want you know, a broader set of channels, you end up cobbling two or three of these services together, at which point you're very quickly going to get back up to the same sort of price point that you're paying for pay TV. Only now you have to go to three different places to get it and the local channels aren't available everywhere and... It just To me, it just reinforced the difficulty of disrupting this business. I mean, on the one hand, there's lots of disruption in this business. People are you know, using Netflix and Hulu and all sorts of other stuff. But on the other hand, the pace of change and disruption in the core business and, and where the power really lies is remarkably undisrupted. Um, and, and until that changes, I think we're not going to see a radical change in how we watch TV in the US. Well, and I wonder how... There are a couple of things. I wonder... I mean, this is really kind of an unintentional experiment it'll be interesting to see what cable channels are getting left behind in the process and are going to get anxious about being left behind. I mean, if the YouTube TV takes off and gets really popular, um, you know, the Viacom channels, for example, are going to be stressed out by that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, when you think about um, the, uh, the over-the-top solutions that are, that are becoming more and more common, where, where, where a content provider is just another app on your TV device, It'll be interesting to see if there's enough time for, for these bundled, you know, these 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 bundled products like YouTube TV. It'll be interesting to see um, if they will have enough time before everybody's just sort of doing their own over-the-top thing anyway. And and some of that it comes in a bundle form anyway through Hulu. I'm thinking of this specifically because I was looking at the YouTube TV offering and I was kind of wondering, okay, I'm already a Hulu subscriber. Why do I want this? Right. You know. Yeah, I mean, unless it's uh, the only thing that would make me want it right now is life sports. Right. But that's always been the outlier in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing here, too, is that, you know, YouTube is positioning this as a, as a sports bundle, basically, because, you know, a lot of sports is on the national networks. But of course, basketball is largely on TNT, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, March Madness and then, um, you know, NBA, NBA Finals in particular, TNT has a lot of those rights and that's a Turner network, so it's not on this. And so, you know, it's big chunks like that missing regional sports networks aren't all in this. So if your local baseball team plays on a regional sports network, sorry, you're out of luck, you know. So there's a lot of stuff that isn't here, even, you know, within the segment they say they're, claim they, they're going for. So as I say, it feels pretty limited to me. I'm, I'm obviously curious to try it out when it releases, but I probably won't even be able to do that because where we live... Uh, the local affiliates aren't owned and operated. Um, and so it probably won't even be available here in Utah. 
All right, well, let's move on to our second topic. This is uh, about Apple, and there was a report from the Wall Street Journal. It's interesting. It came out of their um, Tokyo Bureau rather than the U.S., which suggests to me that it's a supply chain leak rather than a planted rumor, which some of these things sometimes are. Um, but it, it talked about a couple of different things. It talked about OLED screens, which have been very widely rumored for some time now for the new iPhone. But it also talked about a possible replacement of the Lightning port with a USB-C port, there's some logic to that. Obviously, the new MacBooks all have USB-C ports. Um, the new MacBook Pro from late last year has that exclusively, has four of those. Um, but obviously, there's been another big disruption uh, after, you know, Lightning's only five years old itself. So, uh, you know, potential for, for negative response there. Um, what was your take on this one, Aaron? And I, I, I think you mentioned right before we started recording that KGI had put out a report that debunked some of this. Yeah, Mac Rumors reported on that. Um, so Ming-Chi Kuo, who's the analyst, that, and really among all Apple analysts, he, I think, has the sharpest insights into future Apple plans. And he poured cold water on the USB-C thing. He did say that they'll all support fast charging, that the new models will. And I think that has something to do with a type USB-C connector on the other end. But um, but it's not. it doesn't sound like it's going to be... That, that the iPhones or any iOS devices will have USB-C. I personally, I wish they would. I, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, that's, I'm saying that without having a sense of all the engineering trade-offs involved, but there is a really cool elegance to everything being able to plug in to just that one cable. Um, and uh, I, I actually wouldn't be all that surprised by Apple doing this. They, you know, they, uh, out of any tech company, they're one of the most willing to, to, endure painful ecosystem changes right. and, and i and i don't think there's a compelling reason for them to specialize in lightning like there was back with the 30 pin dock connector i mean back then you know all these made for i products like all these you know uh ios ecosystem products it really mattered having this unique 30 pin connector and that carried over a little bit into lightning but you and others have wisely pointed out that that's going away as wireless technology is becoming more common and and so wireless charging, wireless audio, I mean, those are the main two reasons you connect anything to a phone, to to an iPhone, and, uh, you know, audio and charging. And and uh, as those sort of go away, there's not really a good reason to keep the lightning port unique. There's not, there's not a hardware ecosystem um, like there used to be for the iPod. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so interoperability, I think, actually has a likelier bump to iPhone sales in the future than exclusivity of the ecosystem. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I see some logic to it. Um, you know, in some ways, a big iPhone upgrade, if that's what we do end up getting in the fall, would be a nice time to introduce a change like that because be a lot of other sweeteners to, to you know, soften the blow of the bitter pill of yet another new connector. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of logic to going USB-C all the way through the portfolio, you know, at some point in the near future. Uh, and as, as you said, you know, with wireless, it becomes less important what that port is anyway. Um, but, yeah, sounds like for now we're probably not going to get that. It may well be USB-C at the other end of the cable, which makes a lot of sense as well. Um, but, yeah, for now, sounds like this is one, one rumor we can probably debunk. Um, third news roundup topic, Snap's IPO, which happened this morning, recording on Thursday afternoon. So... Uh, snap happened this morning first day of trading is still ongoing as we're talking right now just looking at uh, google finance here it looks like it's at 2579 right now uh, which is 52 percent up on the open 
so up significantly from where it opened. That's pretty predictable, I think, so far. I think it was why they expected to pop pretty nicely, um, just based on a fairly conservative initial price. Um, the big question is just kind of where it goes from here, and I know you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't picture it holding on to this level um, in the next week or so. I mean, I, I guess we always the lawyer in me is always freaking out, like, okay, this isn't investment advice, anybody, obviously. But, but I think I think a lot of people came into this, you know, because there hasn't there hasn't been a a, a, a big notable tech IPO in a while, and I think a lot of people are worried about missing out. Um, so I think there's a big push in. I think you're going to have a lot of profit takers over the next week that are going to look at a 50% gain in a few days and say, yeah, I'm good with that. <laughs> they're right. going to pull their money out and go elsewhere. Um, you know, it, it, we talked about this idea before. If you compare Facebook after its IPO, Twitter after its IPO, there are kind of two futures ahead. Twitter took off and then, and then has been on a pretty steady decline since that takeoff period of, you know, six or so months. And then Facebook, lang I don't know, language is too strong of a word. Facebook sort of sat in the doldrums for about a year and a half um, before it started really growing um, much more steadily and, and, and powerfully and is still doing fantastically. And so, you know, Snap feels like it could go either of those two directions. And, and there, obviously there might be more than those two options ahead um, in terms of its fate, but it feels like it could go either of those two ways. Really, it's yeah. going to come down, I think, to Evan Spiegel and his vision mm -hmm. and how well he's able to execute on that. The, the one thing that stands out to me is just so weird about this is how these are all non-voting shares. Right. I mean, a publicly traded company, yet none of these shares are going to have any control and there are no dividends paid. And so it does kind of make you wonder exactly what you're buying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you know, you're not getting right. any control over the company. I mean, technically, legally, the only thing you're buying is is a right to remaining assets after they dissolve. Right. <laughs> so, yes. and hopefully, it doesn't come to that. Right. Now, I mean, I, I, you know, my my take on this, and we talked about this in depth a couple of weeks ago, is you know, this is one of the riskiest IPOs in some time because of the period of its history that Snap is in, where it's in this uh, had a high growth period, growth slowed late last year. It's still not clear why that was. Snap has an explanation. Others have a different explanation. And we simply can't know for several more months which explanation is correct. And probably Snap itself doesn't even know 100%. And so, you know, you're buying into really the rapid growth phase that was there until the middle of last year uh, in the expectation that it's going to come back. And if it doesn't, um, it ends up being a lot less attractive as an investment. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of the retail investors that are getting in today on the back of, you know, my son uses Snapchat all the time. This is going to be the next big thing. Um, it's not clear that it will be in quite the same way. And, you know, I've been very bullish on Snap in the past, but, um, you know, I, I, and I think it still could be a really big deal and could do very well over the next few years, to your point. It's not going to be probably Facebook-sized, but it could be significantly better than Twitter is. Uh, interestingly, it's market cap already passed Twitter's market cap uh, today. So, you know, it's an interesting comparison to make. But but yeah, I'm, I am concerned that this could still very easily go one of two ways and we really won't know until probably middle of this year roughly which way that's going and it's going to make a very interesting company to watch for sure. Yeah, and the conservative side of me is, is cautious about the timing issue itself. Um, right. Because obviously if Snap is still growing rapidly and they don't need to capitalize, there's not a reason to IPO yet because they would rather IPO later when they're going to get a lot more per share later. 
And right. so the fact that there was a stall that, that had kind of settled in um, about the same time they're doing the IPO, you know, the, the skeptic in me says that's a management choice based on the fact that they're not sure, like, like they may not have a better opportunity later, right? And the, the confidence that the company is still going to grow really rapidly. IPOing now is, a, is evidence to the contrary of that confidence and growth rather than in favor of it. Right, because right. when you IPO, you're offloading risk now onto mm-hmm. all of these public investors, yeah. and and if they if management was thinking, yeah, this this growth trajectory is locked in for the next few years, they would be waiting to IPO for the next few years. Yeah, yeah no, it's a good point. I mean, I think of Zynga, which I'm a very different company, obviously, but you know, another big IPO for the last few years, you know, Farmville and all the rest of it. It IPO'd basically right at the time when its business peaked. Yeah. And it's been downhill all the way since, you know. So there's definitely a precedent for that. And sometimes that is the very driver for the IPO is like, let's get out while we can, basically, you know, at least get our money before everybody notices that things are turning south. Right. All right. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said, it's prompted somewhat by another piece of news from this week, which is the outage that Amazon Web Services suffered earlier in the week, um, which took a lot of the internet down with it. And so our question is, what is AWS and why are so many people dependent on it? And uh, so I've been doing some research about this and and using some of the stuff I already have uh, around AWS on hand. And Aaron's going to be asking the questions. So, yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners are familiar in general with AWS, but I don't think that's universally true. So why don't you just give us a quick explanation of what AWS is and, and what exactly Amazon is selling here? Right. So Amazon launched AWS back in 2006. And um, part of the rationale was it was building lots and lots of infrastructure for its own use for running the Amazon.com e-commerce site. Uh, And ultimately, its requirements for that technology were likely to be very similar to what other companies needed, especially smaller companies that didn't have its scale. And by sharing the load among itself and a whole set of other companies, it could Uh, do much better load balancing, it could be much more efficient, it could drive greater scale, and ultimately build a business out of that as well. And so back in 2006, it launched AWS. At the time, it was mostly a separate infrastructure from its own infrastructure. It did move some workloads there over the uh, succeeding years, and now obviously all of its own big workloads are running on AWS as well. Um, But it's got a lot more sophisticated since then. So when it first launched in 2006, it launched with two products, Uh, The first of those was what's called S3, which is the simple storage service. And the second one launched later in 2006, and that was Elastic Compute Cloud, which is usually just referred to as EC2. So you've got a computing product and you've got a storage product at a basic level. Um, But it's become much more than that too, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But S3 was announced back in March 2006 as the first Amazon web service. Uh, The press release said, it's designed to make web-scale computing easier for developers. Amazon S3 provides a simple web services interface that can be used to store and retrieve any amount of data at any time from anywhere on the web. It gives any developer access to the same highly scalable, reliable, fast, inexpensive data storage infrastructure that Amazon uses to run its own global network of websites. And as I say, it's not necessarily 100% true that it was running its whole site on this infrastructure at the time, but it was the same kind of infrastructure. The service aims to maximize benefits of scale and to pass those benefits on to developers. And that's really remained kind of the core value proposition of AWS ever since. It's this this computing infrastructure that's available anywhere, anytime for anybody who's willing to pay the price for it. 
uh, and it's incredibly scalable and it's cheap. Um, and it launched with a very sort of deliberately limited feature set. It promised 99.99% reliability with no single point of failure, something worth coming back to later. Uh, the initial pricing was 15 cents per gigabyte of storage per month and 20 cents per gigabyte of data transferred. Pricing now for that same service is two, uh, 2.1 to 2.3 cents per gigabyte per month. So it was 15, now it's two. So that gives you some sense of how prices have come down. And that's largely as a result of that scale and then ongoing efficiencies in uh, computer processing and so on storage. Um, transfer in is free transfer out is priced from one to nine cents per gigabyte so putting stuff onto that storage system is free but if you want to pull it out then that costs various amounts as I said that's S3 that's the storage service and then EC2 is the second big product category it was announced later in 2006 it was a limited beta took a couple of years for it to get out of beta this is basically a, a virtual machine service so that you get a virtual computer that sits on a server somewhere and you can rent those virtual machines by the hour as needed, uh, flexing up and down over time. You pay for what you use. So if you use it one hour but not the next, you only pay for the hour you use. And pricing runs anywhere from half a cent per hour to $5.50 per hour, depending on the size, the capabilities of the virtual machine. So uh, there are big discounts as well if you reserve it. So if you make it more predictable for Amazon, how much capacity it's going to need ahead of time, then they give you a discount for that. And then they also offer some really discounted spot pricing for filling unused capacity at less busy times and that kind of thing. Um, because of the scale of this thing, yeah, Amazon has lots of ways to get data in. But uh, in November last year, they actually announced an 18-wheeler truck, which they can park by your data center and plug into your data center and suck out up to 100 petabytes of data. It would take about 10 days to fill it up, apparently. So, um, you know, the amount of storage involved here is, is absolutely enormous in some cases. But the point is that with S3, they can store whatever you want on their servers. And with EC2, you can run computing on their servers. And many companies combine those two in various ways. But you can store anything from internal resources that a company uses inside. You store your website on there. So a lot of websites actually run off S3 either entirely or certain assets on sites like the images on a site, for example, might run on S3, even if the rest is hosted elsewhere, uh, just for better content delivery around the world. Um, each of those two big services, so S3 and EC2, has a lot of other components to it which have been added over time. So over the last few years, it's dramatically accelerated the number of features and so on. And so there's a lot there. The other big expansion over time has been regional. So it started out in the US and then other regions have been added over time. And so now it's uh, available in 190 countries, 13 geographic regions, uh, several regions within the US as well for redundancy. Haha, <laughs> talk about that in a minute. Um, but... Uh, the other interesting thing is that, you know, that's that's kind of the umbrella of AWS. This is basically a cloud computing services, the vast majority of which are not bought or used by end users within an organization, or at least not knowingly used by ordinary end users. They're, they're developer-facing, they're for IT departments and so on. But more recently, really in the last couple of years, Amazon started to um, add to AWS features that look a lot more like Microsoft Office. Um, so they have a product called WorkDocs. They have another product called WorkMail. And then just in the last few weeks, they added something called Amazon Chime, which is sort of a WebEx equivalent. I've actually used it for a couple of calls, used it for one earlier today. It's actually very good. Um, and so alongside all of this kind of infrastructure stuff, they're starting to work on more kind of generic end-user-facing stuff for the enterprise as well and using the AWS brand for that, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, I was highly skeptical of that in the beginning and, and WorkMail and WorkDocs, as far as I can tell, have not been very popular. 
Um, but this Chime service really is very good. And there's talk about them uh, working their way into call centers and that kind of thing recently. So there's some interesting sort of room for expansion there as well. Yeah. So who are some of the companies using this service? I mean, you know, earlier this week, we got a sense that there's some really big, important internet properties that rely on AWS. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Amazon has lists on its site of customer case studies and so on. And they include a lot of really interesting companies, a number of which Amazon competes with. And so the most obvious of those is Netflix. So Netflix runs most of its global video delivery infrastructure off Amazon. Um, so it uses AWS to store and deliver its content around the world, basically. Uh, so, you know, interesting kind of uh, frenemy relationship there. But, you know, lots of other examples. I'll just run through some of these quickly. Spotify, Airbnb, Yelp, Shazam, Intuit, uh, so the accounting software, um, MLB Advanced Media, so that's the bit that provides the MLB at bat app and also supports a lot of other video delivery that has nothing to do with baseball. Comcast, Johnson Johnson, uh, SoundCloud, which we use to host our podcast, is, is using AWS on the back end. Foursquare, Unilever, uh, Condé Nast, Pfizer, Qantas, the Australian airline, Kellogg's, Under Armour, uh, Netflix, which I mentioned already, Blackboard, which obviously provides sort of uh, software for educational environments. And then Snap is worth mentioning as well. So Snap uses primarily Google Cloud, but um, uh, after it filed its original S1, uh, it filed an amended S1 uh, for IPO and uh, mentioned that it had just signed a big deal with Amazon as well, which seems to be for redundancy uh, as sort of a backup to that Google Cloud service. And we can talk about that a little bit more later on. Uh, but, you know, these companies use it for different stuff. So I mentioned Netflix and what they use it for. Kellogg's uh, uses it to run uh, their sales data reporting through SAP. So SAP is obviously a huge uh, enterprise software company. Uh, they, they run a lot of companies' sort of sales and internal reporting and so on. And so in this particular case, they've taken some of the SAP functionality and moved it onto AWS, and that then runs their sales data reporting uh, for their business. Uh, Expedia uh, uses AWS as well. It uses it for, for something very specific. So if you're on Expedia and you're typing in a destination or whatever, apparently one of the big problems that Expedia users have is they type something in wrong. They do a typo, they misspell something inadvertently, and then they don't get any results, and that then causes them to kind of go check somewhere else. So they have this type ahead feature where it kind of auto-completes what you, you're typing, and that uh, was historically hosted by Expedia somewhere in the US, but for their international users, it was too slow to be useful. And so they took that specific workload for, say, Asia Pacific and put it in uh, on AWS servers out in Asia Pacific. So that should be close to users and can deliver that type ahead service on the Expedia website. Um, Comcast uses AWS to deploy updates to its X1 set top boxes. So several times a week, they'll push little software updates to X1, and uh, that they do that through AWS. And then Lionsgate, big movie studio, um, they host a Microsoft SharePoint environment and AWS. So their internal collaboration stuff uh, is Microsoft provider, but they don't host it on Microsoft's cloud service. They host it on AWS. So just give you a sense of just kind of how varied the workloads are that people are putting onto AWS. But, you know, beyond those, there are tons of websites that run off this, lots of e-commerce sites that use AWS to some extent. Um, and there's a much, much longer list of, of companies that are using it in one way or another. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, so this sounds like a really big business. How how big is it? And also, how does it? You mentioned Google Cloud, Microsoft has Azure. How, how big is AWS compared to the competition? Yeah, so uh, Amazon is is the biggest business in this space by quite some margin, um, and it's growing very rapidly. So in two thousand sixteen, it was um, just under twelve and a half billion dollar revenue. 
business uh, for Amazon. Uh, and that was up from uh, just under 8 billion a year earlier. So, you know, really quite rapid growth by about 50% year on year. Uh, Microsoft doesn't report the size of its Azure business. It does talk about the Microsoft commercial cloud business, um, which is not really the same thing. It's sort of a superset of Azure and a bunch of other stuff like Office 365. Uh, even that business, though, if you include all of that stuff, that was $9.5 billion in their last financial year. So 12 and a bit for Amazon, 9.5 for Microsoft, for something that includes a lot more than just its equivalent to AWS. That's also growing very rapidly. It about doubled. Uh, the Azure business, that is, doubled over the last year. But the Azure business itself, the, the estimates for the size of that business are very, very widely. Um, you know, several hundred million a quarter seems to be uh, about as precise as we can be. Uh, it seems to have, you know, the, the kind of highest estimate that I've seen is about $3 billion uh, on an annual run rate basis uh, in 2017. Uh, but it may well be a bit smaller than that still. So if you compare that $3 billion to Amazon's $12 billion, it's a it's a fraction. Um, and then you look at Google, which is the other sort of big competitor in this space. Um, and that's a billion dollars in revenue or likelihood uh, in 2016. Again, it doesn't report directly. That's a third-party estimate. So again, a fraction even of Microsoft's Azure business there. So Amazon top, Microsoft second, Google a long way behind. And again, Microsoft includes a lot of stuff in cloud, which you know doesn't directly compete with AWS. As I said, AWS is expanding into some productivity software and stuff. So the two may be more similar in their scope over time. But obviously, the main focus of AWS is still kind of compute and storage, whereas Microsoft's cloud stuff includes a lot of other bits and pieces. There are obviously lots of other competitors in this space too. So, you know, IBM is a competitor for some of it. Uh, Rackspace is a big sort of standalone competitor. And there are lots and lots of others as well. Um, and if you if you want to look really broadly, um, the competition isn't just other providers doing the same thing as Amazon Web Services. The biggest single competitor is arguably enterprises hosting things on their own internal servers. So it's not a cloud service at all that's a competitor. It's basically doing it in-house. And so that's really the addressable opportunity for AWS is to go after all those workloads that companies have that they run on their own servers that they own and maintain and taking those workloads onto a cloud service like AWS. And obviously that's the big opportunity for Microsoft and for Google and others as well. Um, but Amazon's certainly the big fish in this pond right now. So with all of these um, very large and, and, and widely varied companies relying on AWS, the, it makes sense why there was such a big news item this week when it went down. Kind of tell us what happened. Like, like, in fact, I know we don't know everything yet about what happened exactly, but, but what was it that caused this to be such a big news item this week? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> on Tuesday it was, um, AWS and specifically it's S3. So it's the storage service. Um, within AWS went down in one of the U.S. regions, and, and it's the uh, U.S. East 1 region at Amazon, uh, which is hosted in Northern Virginia. Um, basically, and Amazon has put out an explanation for this. I haven't seen it widely reported, but it is on their website. Uh, the S3 team was debugging an issue with the billing system. Basically, the billing system seemed to be running more slowly than usual. And so one of the members of the team, they kind of agreed what they were going to do about this. And they basically, uh, I don't want to say unplugged a server, but in essence, they uh, disconnected a server uh, or a small set of servers uh, that were used by the billing process. And somehow they made a mistake as they were executing the command and took down far more servers than they intended to. Um, and 
those servers then were supporting other S3 systems and so that triggered a failure in those. And so there was this sort of domino effect. And the problem is these servers are running at absolutely massive scale at this point, yeah, absolutely huge numbers of workloads, each of which are enormous in their own right, running on this stuff. And uh, as it turns out, uh, they don't get restarted very often, as you would expect. You know, I mean, most of us probably restart our computers fairly regularly, uh, shut them down and start them up again. You can't really do that if you're running a 24-7 cloud system. And so Amazon really had no idea how long it would take having shut something down to start it back up again. And as it turns out, it took a very long time. Uh, to get those uh, systems up and running again. And in the meantime, they'd had these knock-on effects on other systems. And so there was this domino effect, as I say, where several systems kind of went down at once. And essentially all the uh, get, list, put, and delete requests, so all the stuff, all the commands that you issue to put something on a server, to pull it off, to delete something from a server, and so on, uh, or even just to list what's on a server, all those things for S3 went down. Um, and so it took them hours to kind of get these services fully up and running again. And in the meantime, it took down lots and lots of stuff that depends on that. So lots of websites were down. Uh, a lot of the articles that were written by people that I follow on Twitter were saying, here's my article. It doesn't have an image because in order to put an image on it, I need to use our S3 instance and it's down. Um, so there was a lot of stuff like that that was happening. Um, you know, uh, it, there was a lot of websites that were either not working at all or were going down completely. One of the great ironies, well, two of the great ironies, actually. One was there's a website called downforeveryoneorjustme.com where you can go and check, you know, is this my internet connection or is it, you know, something else that's causing the site not to work for me? I use it all the time. That was down <laughs> because it runs on <laughs> S3. Uh, and the other irony was that Amazon's dashboard for S3 was showing all green lights, which obviously shouldn't have been doing when it was having a major outage. As it turns out, the dashboard itself runs on S3. And so um, when S3 wasn't working properly, they couldn't update the dashboard. And so they had to put a little banner above it saying, this isn't working right now, but it, things shouldn't be green. And then use their Twitter account to kind of provide real-time updates. So, oh, you know, it was kind of a disaster. Um, I found uh, one article on... Uh, Business Insider that was uh, citing research done by a company called Science with a truly horrible spelling of science. Um, and it's a startup that basically models the economic impact of cyber risk. And they estimated that S&P 500 companies alone lost around 150 to $160 million during the four-hour disruption. So uh, that's from lost sales because e-commerce either wasn't working or was just you know, a thousand times slower than usual, which is utterly frustrating. Um, Express, Lululemon, and One Kings Lane, I guess, all run entirely on uh, this system, and so they went down completely. Uh, but there was a bunch of other sites. Like Target was uh, almost a thousand percent slower than usual. Nike, Nordstrom, Victoria's Secret, and Disney Store, a uh, bunch of others weren't. Were all went down. And here's the thing. I mean, as I said up front, when Amazon first launched AWS and S3. It said it was intended to have 99.99% reliability and not to have a single point of failure. And so what they discovered in this particular case is, well, right now it isn't working that way. And Amazon was surprised by that too. Um, you know, they say they build all their systems on the assumption that things will occasionally fail. Um, and the operation that was supposed to uh, be happening on Tuesday to solve this billing issue is one that they've used over and over again and has never caused a problem before, but they hadn't ever completely restarted um, these systems. And having taken them down, it then took a very long time to come back up again. And so, you know, the problem is, unless you regularly test this stuff, which you really can't when you've got 
active workloads running on it, you really don't know what's going to happen when something goes down. And so even though you make your best efforts to, to pro provide the reliability you want and not to have a single point of failure, once something gets to a certain scale, it's almost impossible to actually test that and really make sure it will fail over in the way that you want it to. And so it caused a lot of disruption for an awful lot of people. Yeah, I'll say. It, it, it makes me just wonder, is this, and I'm not normally a cynic or a skeptic about technology and our reliance on it. I think it makes the world better in all these really fantastic, incredible ways. But I mean, is this is this a good thing that so much of the internet is relying on, on one service provider? I, I don't think it is. And I think ideally you'd have redundancy built in. Um, and so I mentioned Snap briefly earlier. You know, they, they filed their, their initial S1 in which they said they had a big contract with Google to use the Google Cloud service. And they basically run the whole of the Snapchat infrastructure off Google Cloud. And that obviously makes them enormously reliant on the, on Google. And it was interesting to see them sort of a week later issue this amended S1 in which they said they now had a really big deal with Amazon as well. And at least some of that was for redundancy so that they could fail over. If there was ever a massive outage on the Google side, they could fail over to Amazon. Um, the problem is that's very costly. So their commitment to Amazon over the next five years uh, starts much slower than Google because they really have nothing on that uh, infrastructure for today. But by the end of that five-year period, their annual commitment to Amazon is as big as their annual commitment to, to Google is. You know, Providing redundancy essentially means you have to, to some extent, book the same amount of capacity just in case. Um, and that is expensive. And so um, you know, that kind of redundancy where you use two suppliers is important. And Apple has been kind of increasingly incre uh, diversifying its cloud uh, over the last few years. So they uh, they have used Azure quite a bit in the past. They use Google as well. They've used some Amazon uh, infrastructure. They really try to be diverse so that, you know, iTunes and things like that don't go down entirely uh, when there's an outage somewhere. Um, Amazon itself offers redundancy. So they can do multi-regional redundancy where you uh, nominally, you know, if your main workloads are on, say, the US East 1 servers that went down this week, then you fail over to one on the West Coast or something such that, you know, if, if an area ever goes down, you can just fail over and it's fine. Now, that seems not to have worked for some companies, at least this week, partly because some of the subsystems were running on uh, this S3 server that was accidentally unplugged. So it's a complex picture, but redundancy is certainly part of, of how you deal with that. And, you know, for all that we might want to say, this is a bad idea for us to be so dependent on a single company. If that company is beating all comers in terms of price and performance and availability and all the rest of it, then naturally many companies are going to gravitate to it as customers and use that service. And I'm not sure what can be done about that other than uh, having that redundancy built in. And I think that really is the solution. But, you know, whereas in the past, you know, companies host their own servers, you know, worst thing that can happen is you lose your connectivity to the building uh, and you lose, you know, the functionality on those servers. But, you know, now where so much of the internet's infrastructure is so concentrated, uh, especially in Amazon servers, you know, the risks when something does go wrong are, are really quite enormous and there's really not a ton that we can do about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I wonder if more and more companies are going to start taking Snap's approach. I was going to describe it as an insurance policy, but that's not true. It's much more expensive than insurance because yeah. right? insurance you're just paying for the potential likelihood of an outcome, so you're paying the expected value of that outcome, whereas... Mm -hmm. In the case of you know using AWS as your backup to to Google Cloud, you're I mean not quite doubling your cost, but you're heading right. that direction much more rapidly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, that wraps up the question of the week for this week. So we'll move on to our third segment. And as I mentioned at the beginning, what we're going to be talking about for the last few minutes here is the announcements made at Mobile World Congress, which is the big global mobile trade show that happens in Barcelona every year around February time. Uh, it's just concluding today and uh, started over the weekend. Lots of announcements at the weekend and a steady sort of flow through Monday and Tuesday as well. Um, everybody who's anybody, it seems, has made some kind of an announcement there. Uh, Samsung didn't make their big announcement there this year. Their S8 is going to be announced at the end of this month in New York City at a special standalone event. They did make some other announcements there with Gear VR and, and some tablets and so on. Uh, Apple obviously doesn't participate in trade shows for the most part, but they and SAP did make an announcement there about the sort of uh, next phase of their relationship, which they announced last year. So even Apple made an announcement there, um, at least a joint one. But there were lots of phone announcements, and so that's really what we wanted to drill into. Uh, was there anything that really caught your eye, Aaron, from these various announcements? I thought the Nokia, I already forgot the model number. I always had a hard time. 3310. The 3310, right. I thought that was an interesting announcement. Um, I definitely think there's a demand for simpler phones. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of nostalgia purchases along those lines. Um, yeah. Obviously, it's never not, it's, it doesn't have the market capacity to bring Nokia back to its former glory. Uh, or I should say the Nokia brand back to its former glory. But mm -hmm. um but I thought that was an interesting announcement. There's, you know, the the smartphone space because of the dominance of Android and, and iOS kind of has a monolithic feel to it, and I, I like the idea of more diversity in that space. So I thought that was an interesting announcement. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree. And and it's it's a complex one too because the Nokia brand is no longer owned by right. the company that's called Nokia, right? So it's. HMD Global is a standalone business. It sits right across from the Nokia headquarters, but it's a separate company that acquired the rump of the feature phone business from Microsoft um, and now has the right to use that Nokia name for making phones. And so it's really bizarre where the, their URL for HMD Global, a company that's technically separate from Nokia, is nokia.com slash phones. Uh, so, you know, not only are they sharing a brand, but they're sharing a website. Yeah. Um, but they are actually a separate entity that really has no connection to the original Nokia. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely the nostalgia angle. There's this sort of desire to resurrect this brand that used to be extremely popular. And it was funny, I don't know if you saw this, but um, Apple had its shareholder meeting this week and there wasn't a lot that was newsworthy, but one of the last questions that was asked by one of the shareholders in attendance was, can't you make a really simple little round phone? <laughs> you know, yeah. And you know, here you have Nokia <laughs> kind of bringing out just that in some ways, you know, this sort of more rounded version of this classic phone from 17 years ago. So uh, there is this sort of nostalgia aspect. There are some people that, that like the simplicity of that and... Uh, and yet, you know, this isn't, to your point, going to bring the Nokia brand back by itself, you know. And they, they do also have some Android smartphones that they've launched over the last few months, including this week. And those seem, you know, more likely to capture some meaningful share and obviously will make more money for them because the, the 3310, I think, is about 50 bucks. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's so far gone now, it's hard to imagine that brand being resurrected. Um, and that kind of brings us on to some extent to, to BlackBerry, which also had a sort of one of these complex announcements where it's a different company making a phone using the BlackBerry name. And so it's in this case, it's TCL or Alcatel TCL, uh, which makes TVs and phones and other things based in China. They've licensed uh, the BlackBerry name uh, among several companies that have done this to make smartphones. And they, they released a new BlackBerry phone 
with a physical keyboard and quite a large touchscreen as well. Uh, it's a fairly premium device, about $550, uh, so it's not cheap. Um, and again, another sort of attempt to resurrect an old brand that's gone through hard times recently. Yeah, the difference with the BlackBerry device is, um, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, I, I just don't think there's that same nostalgia for the keyboard as there was for just a simpler device overall. I think the mm. people complaining about, the people that are interested in, in the new Nokia phone are interested in it because they like getting rid of the distractions in their lives. Right. Whereas I think most of the people that pine, that most of the people that used to pine for a physical keyboard have just moved on. <laughs> and figured it yeah, out and absolutely and, right. and i and i think you know that's true simply because there aren't all that many physical keyboard accessories for smartphones anymore that are popular i remember ryan seacrest had that one a while ago oh, yeah <laughs> he got sued over by blackberry because it was so similar to to their keyboard but um but you know that I, I think that's mostly gone away and everybody who all the holdouts for physical keyboards have moved on and and they're fine with touchscreen keyboards now whereas the so I'm not sure that that strategy is going to work quite as well as the I want less distraction in my life strategy that has an appeal on the Nokia side. And, and plus there are certain demographics for which a phone like that I think is great. I, you know, Younger kids, for example, if parents don't want their kids having a, a full-blown smartphone, um, a device like that sort of you know, it's still high quality and, and, uh, and, and it fits better into the needs you know, for that kind of a customer. So... Yeah, so yeah. I'm not as optimistic at all about the BlackBerry. Yeah, um, no, I'm not either. I mean, approach. it's another brand that feels like it's just too far gone at this point. And, and the right. things that made it unique are just not prized in the way that they once were. You know, I think, again, if they'd done it several years ago, it might have been different. But at this point, I, I don't see it really making a meaningful difference. Yeah. Um, one of the other interesting things that I haven't seen a lot of news coverage of, mostly because it was a, it turns out it was a prototype rather than a sort of a finished device, but there was a, a device from Oppo, which is one of these enormous Chinese brands that's unknown outside of China, but it's one of the top five smartphone brands now globally, uh, just because of its sheer scale in China. Uh, Oppo showed off a device that had a 5X optical zoom inside it, which was enabled by this curious periscope mechanism that basically bends the light as it comes into the device and then send it down inside the device to make use of the length of the device so they can have a low, longer... Uh, I guess a longer focal length and more room for movement in there, which is ingenious to say the least. And um, saw a number of people sort of playing around with it and, and suggesting that it produced some really interesting images. Um, both Oppo and some of the other Chinese manufacturers seem to be doing some really interesting stuff with cameras, um, which we haven't really seen before from them. Yeah, I, I think the Oppo approach is is, is fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to imagine other, you know, like I'm trying to imagine Apple, for example, taking that approach to the iPhone. Have a hard time picturing it because um, they would essentially be trading out a camera bump in exchange for losing four to five times the amount of space within right. the phone itself, <laughs> and knowing how tightly you know they engineer the space inside these devices because they make them so thin. I have a hard time imagining Apple adopting that unless they sort of made substantial gains in other miniaturization areas that they could do that, but. I, I do think it's creative, and it, it speaks to you know it speaks to the general idea that more and more these camera phones are going to be pen, are going to be penetrating the camera market in deeper ways. I think than any of us really anticipated. I, you know, I the we we haven't yet seen the extent of what smartphone cameras can accomplish, um, right. and I don't think we're going to be there for for years yet. 
and yeah. it's exciting to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, agreed. Um, one of the other announcements was LG. They they did launch their flagship, unlike Samsung. They did launch their flagship at MWC this year, and it's the G6. And it's a great example of the way in which some of these Android vendors kind of swing back and forth like a pendulum mm-hmm. between extremes. So last year's LG G5 was all about modular. It was about components and about having things that snapped onto it and added features and functionality. And, and they were one of two companies to do that last year with Motorola, with the Moto Z and their Moto mods. Uh, this year's phone seems really stripped down, very simple little slab, uh, very attractive looking, really big screen, smaller bezels, which really feels like a theme we're going to see this year from everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, water and dust proofing, which they hadn't had the previous year. Um, some other changes here and there, but a real simplification of the value proposition, sort of going back to basics to a great extent. It looks like a really attractive phone, very solid physically, um, and uh, you know, feels like it should do better than the, the G5, which really didn't work out very well for LG. Yeah, you know, I think the thing about this LG phone and the modularity approach that they took before, it, it illustrates how hard marketing is in, in the premium Android space. And it's tempting for companies to go after gimmicks because it becomes a shortcut to good marketing. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you yeah. can sort of like draw attention to the fact that it's it's different or unique or strange. Um, but that but that doesn't get people to buy phones. It might get you right. a headline, but yeah. uh, it's not going to get people to buy phones. And and I think LG is much smarter. Um, just sort of going after you know this very like basics not quite the right word because it's a premium phone but a simple approach to the premium space I think that's really what people want when it comes to premium phones whether it's Android or iOS yeah no absolutely and it was interesting to see um, Motorola is actually kind of doubling down on their modular approach so you know whereas LG is backed off and I think that's smart uh, Motorola seems to be sticking with it um, and you know there was an interview that one of their execs did at Mobile World Congress this week in which they talked about the fact that roughly every other buyer of a Moto Z buys some kind of mod, in other words, roughly half. Um, that's surprisingly high. Um, and so, you know, you could say, well, this is clearly working for them. You know, it's something that people are choosing this device for this reason and they are actually buying the mods and so on. On the other hand, their total sales for the Moto Z over 12 months are expected to be about $3 million. Um, so it's a tiny, you know, market share. It's yeah. a tiny proportion of their overall sales, which was about fifty million last year. So, you know, in the scheme of Lenovo's businesses, is tiny. So, on the one hand, you can say, "Oh, these mods are popular," but the phone itself isn't that popular. I guess is the point. Um, you know, it's it's underselling. You know, Samsung's big phones by factors. Um, so, you know, it's it's curious to see them kind of doubling down on that. The more positive thing that they also announced was that they're really going back to the Moto name, which is very sensible. Um, you know, they really had planned to kind of phase out the Motorola brand in favor of the Lenovo brand, and they seem to have completely backed away from that in reverse course, which I think is absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, the thing about that modular approach is that really there are, of course, customers out there who want it, but you're essentially guaranteeing that your phone will only hit this tiny percentage of the market. Right. There are people who like that, and that's great that there's a product for them, but mm-hmm. but that's as, as big as that phone's going to get, is that tiny yeah. slice of people who want that you know, the modularity. Right. Yeah. I think about the kind of an analogy to cars, right? So, you know, there are some cars out there that look absolutely crazy, sort of bizarre designs um, and people buy them, but you don't yeah. make that your kind of main model. You know, it's no coincidence that the, you know, best selling sort of 
sedan for the last goodness knows how many years in the US is about the most boring looking car you can imagine. It's, you know, Toyota Camry, um, you know, almost zero personality at all. Um, but it's because that's not alienating at all. You know, it's a, it's a car that almost anybody could be happy driving because it doesn't make any extreme statements about their personality. It's not, you know, this strange niche taste that they have to defend to their friends. You know, it's a very ordinary, highly functional, very reliable car. Um, you know, and yeah, there are the kind of Honda Fits and various other things out there that you can buy that look very different and kind of quirky. But, you know, it's, those aren't the ones that sell. And this is the problem with Lenovo Motorola having the Moto Z as their flagship is, to your point, they limit the addressable market by making it so unique and distinctive rather than have it have mass appeal. Right. And this is where LG has a chance because of, of Samsung with the, the, the Note 7 battery issues and all that. I, 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 I think there's a, I think this is a good strategy because of the chance for them to grow into the premium space that, uh, where, you know, where Samsung kind of had a stranglehold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else from MWC that you saw that we should talk about? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, you know, it's a funny conference every year because it draws so many people. Like, yeah. I, like I think I saw today on Twitter um, that it was something like one hundred eight thousand people at this mm-hmm. one conference. I mean, that is a massive thing, and, and yet, you know, the announcements that there aren't big ground shaking <laughs> announcements yeah. that come out of this. I mean, it's all collectively really huge, but but it doesn't seem like there's ever any one big announcement that it that feels world world changing. Yeah, especially when Samsung doesn't doesn't do a flagship right. announcement there, which they have done in the past, but they right. didn't do this year. Yeah. But but yeah, it feels like a lot of noise. And you know, I, in its defense, it's it's also the trade show for the kind of global mobile market. So there's a you know there's there is this sort of trade show sort of show floor announcements side of things, and then there's just this is how the mobile industry gets together. You know, this is how they have their meetings annually and all the rest of it. And so there's a lot more that we don't get to read about. But yeah, for, for for sheer newsworthiness, it's it sort of feels like it's well behind CES at this point. Yeah. All right, well, let's wrap up that segment there and then finish our episode on our weekly pick as usual. So this is where one of us recommends something that we have been enjoying or using and that we think our listeners might enjoy too. And this week, it's Aaron's turn. So I actually want to just go rewind about a month. The last uh, I, a, couple, a few, like four weeks ago or so, I gave a weekly pick recommending a book called The Wild Robot. And I had recommended it without actually having finished it yet with my son. I, I just need to jump in to say we finished it and my son was sniffling. It has kind of a melancholy ending. And as, as I was finishing the book, my son was sniffling and I thought maybe he had a cold. And I looked over and he was bawling <laughs> because it was such an emotional ending of the story for him. So anyway, so if you if you still have that on on your on the back burner of the wild robot to read with your kids, I, I recommend it. It was it was really fantastic. Um, so my recommendation today is kind of like one of those life hack recommendations, like here's a cool little tool or thing that you should know about because it's handy in all these different contexts. And it's a squeeze bottle. And I know that's a really strange thing to recommend, but there's a company called Wilton that makes it. It's they are, The idea is they market it for candy making. And um, they're these little translucent white um, squeeze bottles that come with a red cap. Um, a screw on top. They're pretty flexible um, and they come in different sizes so you can get them down from two ounces up to I think six or eight ounces or something like that. So they're not huge um, but they are incredibly convenient things to have around the house. And and so we 
I've gotten sort of into the habit of just keeping a bunch of these around. They're inexpensive, um, and so they're they're easy to keep around. And I, it, so I'll give you a sense on kind of some of the places we, we've used them before. Um, they're really handy in the kitchen. Um, I actually use them now for all cooking oils. So I have an olive oil bottle and a regular, um, you know, um, like an all-purpose cooking oil bottle. And it's just a really handy way to get oil into your cooking. So you can buy sort of the big bottle and then you fill up these little squeeze bottles and it's really handy for that. Um, I've also used it for sort of other odds and ends, um, like if I've made a, a simple syrup for a dessert or something like that, it's really easy just to pour into this squeeze bottle and then it's handy to use uh, in cooking. So in the kitchen, they're really handy. Um, my wife has done, she might be embarrassed by me saying this, so nobody tell her anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, but she's... Uh, been doing a new thing replacing shampoo with sort of some like you know homemade ingredients and so she keeps a couple of these bottles in the shower now instead of shampoo and it's it's um and she's been really happy with them in that sense too because it it you know they're just sort of like perfectly sized for what she wants um it, 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 you may have been listening and go, oh, I can think of where I'd use this. Or you may have been listening to this and saying, boy, I have no idea how I'd ever use it. But like I said, these are cheap. You can find them on Amazon for very low prices. You can get a, 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 a we'll link, for example, to a six pack of them for $13. And so they're only a couple dollars each. And they're just handy to keep around. And so, like I said, this is a life hack recommendation. The Wilton candy making squeeze bottles, you can find them in all kinds of different sizes and combinations and price points on Amazon, but they're all inexpensive. Um, and there are just a lot of different situations where they're handy and they're well-made. Great. Well, thank you, Aaron. And as Aaron said, we'll link to that on the website at podcast.beyonddevices, along with links to some of the other stuff that we've talked about today. Thank you for being with us. If you have some time, feel free to recommend us. Go leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Uh, recommend this episode or other episodes in the Overcast app or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Every time you do that, that helps new people to find us and uh, become listeners as well. And, and that's what we love to do is to have lots of listeners who we can share some of these thoughts with. We hope it's useful to you. We hope you find it interesting and enjoyable. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.